Welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Market School. Each week, we bring together a team of experts to bring you the latest news and insights to help you navigate the crypto markets. This is available on YouTube if you'd like to see all the great charts our team have put together, and also on podcast for those of you on the move. Without further ado, let's get into this week's programming. Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. My name is Ben Floyd. I'm Head of Execution Services and I am your host for today. We're joined by George Toropov and Gregory Sutton, both senior traders on the CES team and David Duong, our Head of Institutional Research. This call is pre-recorded at 9.15 a.m. Eastern, so please keep this in mind if you're watching it later in the day. First, some quick disclaimers. This call is intended only for sophisticated investors and is for informational purposes. The views expressed in this call are not necessarily those of Coinbase, and Coinbase is not providing any investment advice or recommendations through this call. Investing in cryptocurrency comes with risk. So to today's agenda, first George is going to take us through the put call ratio in both BTC and ETH, some NFT liquidations, how they work, and is there some trouble with the ETH merge? David is then going to run us through what came out of Jackson Hole, um, Europe's potential energy crisis, and then also the troubles in the China real estate market. And then lastly, Greg's going to touch on what's happening on the exchange and what the institutions are doing at the moment. Without further ado, George, over to you. Uh, great. Thank you, Ben. Um, price action was uh, really interesting over the last seven days, uh, which can be split in two parts, really. The first ending Sunday and the second part commencing yesterday. The entire last week, the mood was uh, very negative and it was all about TradFire, namely the hawkish tones coming uh, from Jackson Hole, where Powell reiterated that there might be more pain uh, for risk assets ahead and interest rates will have to stay higher for longer. So this led to a broad-based sell-off in risk assets. NASDAQ had its worst day since mid-June on Friday, and crypto continued to sell off uh, all weekend, with BTC dropping below 20K and ETH into the 1400s. And then Monday, um, come Monday, actually the picture turned a bit, and I think we are seeing uh, a technical relief rally without major headlines uh, so far, um, maybe a, a bit of a short squeeze, actually. Um, BTC dominance and uh, ETH BTC relatively stable over seven days and equally no huge moves in uh, most altcoins over the week with uh, SNX and ICP bouncing after some underperformance. And uh, at the same time, popular recent market darlings like Uni and Lido have been shedding some gains as uh, capital was rotated and um, outperformance has been trimmed back now. And now let's uh, take a look at ETH. Uh, in the last few calls, uh, we talked a few times about being wary about a so-called buy the rumor, a sell effect type of dynamic going into the merge. Now, obviously, uh, the main reason for the recent drop was the hawkish Fed and the higher terminal Fed rate getting priced in now at 383, while we are pricing about 35 basis points worth of cuts still in 2023, which is down a little bit from uh, over a week ago when it was 40 basis points. So I think uh, there is still risk uh, to the market overall, while we are still pricing cuts, looking at it from a macro angle. From an ETH versus BTC options angle, it's interesting that the put-to-call open interest ratio in ETH remains persistently below BTC, despite the recent price action. In ETH, we're currently around uh, 0.25 versus 0.6 in BTC, suggesting investors are expecting outsized returns in ETH. 
And while this may be the case in the longer run, I think there is some chance that these uh, uber bullish positions and ETH relative to BTC uh, could get unwound if the price action following the merge is underwhelming, perhaps combined with some pressure from TradeFi. Moving over to uh, stable coins, uh, more specifically stable coin dominance. Uh, I was looking at a USDT and a USDC dominance combined, so largely glorying the uh, more niche stables. And across USDT and USDC, we are at 12.4% uh, uh, dominance at the moment. When stablecoin dominance increases, that has most of the time coincided with a broader market drop, uh, which uh, should intuitively uh, make sense. Vice versa, it's true as well. Stablecoin dominance decreases are coinciding with the market uh, rallying as cash gets deployed. So the interesting thing here is that stablecoin dominance has recently been at the highest level pretty much ever with this market drop, uh, while since June, the total market cap was oscillating around uh, $1 trillion, relatively stable. So what this means to me is that a relatively large part of the overall wallet is sitting on the sidelines, and this war chest is quite large now. With other words, uh, once we do stabilize and confidence will return to the markets, I think there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. Moving over to uh, NFTs uh, real quick. Uh, over, overall, the market uh, has been very stable in terms of price floors over the last week or so, uh, but uh, I wanted to talk about BandDAO. BandDAO basically gives you the ability, if you own an NFT, to borrow ETH against it and deposit the NFT as collateral. Taking a look at the big picture, uh, as we've all seen, while NFT floors have been stable over the last week, since early Q2, um, most of the major projects are down 70 to 80% in US dollar terms. So I think uh, looking at the health factor alerts on the Bandao app gives an interesting perspective on the NFT market and might um, be something to keep an eye on uh, as we go into the merge and uh, we get some uh, volatility in ETH. Currently, there are a bunch of mutant apes that have the worst health ratios, uh, just around 1.0 to 1.2, uh, mostly so not quite yet at levels where it will get liquidated, but not too far from it either. And who knows, um, maybe we'll get some uh, bargains here uh, as we get closer to the merge, if uh, that's something that you're in the market for. And lastly, uh, moving over to the news, a um, couple of interesting headlines this week with uh, Samsung out of everyone reportedly uh, looking at setting up a crypto exchange in Korea potentially next year, while at the same time FTX has put cold water on reports that it was planning to buy Huobi. In other news, Meta now added uh, functionality to post NFTs on Facebook, while the SEC has kicked GAN down the road on a Bitcoin spot ETF yet again, which shouldn't be a big surprise. Uh, in what seems to be a trend also, Sam Trabuco, the co-CEO of Alameda, has resigned after Genesis Michael Morrow also recently resigned. And lastly, some bugs were discovered in the code ahead of the ETH merge. So I think keeping a very close eye on these stories will be important as we get closer to it in the next two weeks. And on that note, back over to you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, George. Um, interesting news on the NFTs there. Um, so practically, how would that work if an NFT was going to get liquidated? Uh, sure. Um, so I think the, the, the main problem of uh, on-chain liquidations with NFTs is their illiquidity, uh, very similar actually to that of uh, traditional art objects as well. So let me give you an example. Uh, let's say you have a board ape and a loan against it uh, where the health ratio drops below one. Uh, so what that means is that um, the value of the NFT floor as a proxy for the value um, 
of the NFT is at or very close to the value of the loan itself that was made with your APE as collateral. Um, so then basically uh, liquidation proceedings can be triggered. There'll be a 48 hour grace period where uh, the borrower of, of the ETH that used the NFT as collateral can post more collateral to improve the health ratio. And if that doesn't happen, then we eventually go into liquidation. Now, um, the price will be set at 95% of the floor price. So let's say um, you have a 100 ETH floor price, then uh, the price that could be set during that liquidation proceedings would be 95 ETH. Um, but this can obviously take some time. Um, and uh, what if there are no bidders, right? It means that it could keep pushing the floor prices down ultimately because you naturally have like a lot of these offers around without actually liquidating. Um, so eventually, uh, like actually with a house foreclosure, uh, the borrower might just decide to hand the keys in and uh, just uh, keep the ape with, uh, with, with the counterparty uh, if the value of the loan is, is greater. So they're currently actually working on uh, revamping some of those mechanics and potentially looking at 70% of the floor price just to get it liquidated quicker. But I think ultimately the problem will remain that you know NFTs are uh, inherently uh, illiquid because it's more of an art form than uh, a tangible, uh, sorry, a, a, a token. So it doesn't feel like the best uh, liquidation mechanism, um, but I guess it's better than one's ability to liquidate uh, traditional art, which is uh, arguably even more illiquid. Um, but I guess interesting, like certain apes have different qualities that mean they should be trading significantly above the floor price. So in theory, a 5% discount on an ape that, sh that typically trades at 50% premium could, could actually be quite a good deal. But I guess it's the devil's in the detail and you need to kind of know what you're looking for, I imagine. 100%, it, it can certainly be like great deal. As you say, like if you have a very rare ape, I think uh, it can be a bargain. But at the same time, I feel like um, obviously you need some sort of um, mathematical way to approach this and uh, just using the NFT floor price is probably the easiest uh, proxy uh, for, for the price of the collection. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks, George. David, over to you for some macro feeds. There's a ton going on and uh, we're curious to hear your thoughts post Jackson Hole. Thanks a lot, Ben. So first things first, let's unpack Jackson Hole because I think there have been a lot of headlines around this. Um, I don't think that they're wrong per se, but I also think that a lot of uh, newspapers are making the right connections among what Jay Powell said, what the markets are thinking, what's kind of getting priced in. Uh, so number one, was he hawkish? Yes. Absolutely, he was hawkish. But was he more hawkish than what I would have expected? I would say not really. And maybe that's just me because a lot depends on what you were expecting to hear. Uh, but all I can tell you is that in our view, I actually think he came out with the bare minimum of what was necessary to actually have credibility here, which was a commitment to fight inflation because they have actually lost a lot of credibility over the last year. And this you know, started when they were moving away from transitory, for example, then they got into forward guidance. And very recently, of course, they gave forward guidance. You know, I actually expected to hear them overcorrect and they didn't do that. If anything, they basically just said, you know, the bear market in the last couple of weeks was wrong and we aren't any less hawkish. So please markets, just stop what you're doing. Um, so I think there was a lot of focus on Powell introducing this idea of trade-offs by saying we are reducing inflation and it may require a sustained period of below trend growth. Um, I think that in many parts, he was just kind of what uh, echoing what Neil Kashkari had been saying over the last couple of weeks. So it's not new particularly to me. Um, I think it was also pretty clear that if you wanna bring inflation down, you don't need disinflation, you need deflation. Uh, and that's what we actually probably need to engineer over the next couple of months in order to kind of 
bring inflation probably not towards target, but at least somewhere in the ballpark in two years time. So I think that very much they're using verbal intervention right now to anchor expectations. Now, number two, Fed pivot, very unlikely. I would say Fed put, absolutely not. So the second part of that, I think was always pretty clear, but I think that, you know, granted, I didn't think they were gonna cut in 2023. Um, and, you know, that's just not how the Fed operates. That's not what they would ever wanna signal. You know, he did say that uh, rates will need to head higher and stay higher for some time. So, you know, the sustained period of tighter monetary conditions that uh, I think market players or at least, uh, you know, newspapers talk about. That's not really my question. I think the question is how many market players are actually pricing this in? Were some doing that? Probably, yes. But I don't think it's as many as many people would think to move markets to this degree. Number three, September's Fed meeting. Is it going to be 50 or 75? Probably this one isn't necessarily driving the markets right now, but definitely the speech didn't do much to answer the question. My impression is still 75 is what's on the table, but definitely uh, what we've heard from Jackson Hole pushes the ball back to the data. And August CPI print is going to be released on September 13th. That's going to be a big deal. Cleveland Fed's nowcast is currently projecting around 8.28% year on year, which is lower than the 8.5% we got in July. Uh, but the core CPI, has been taking higher. We mentioned this last week. It is still at six and a quarter. So, you know, I think that that still makes the job very difficult for the Fed. We've also got this week the uh, big August jobs report that's going to drop uh, later this week. And, you know, this is going to also determine how the dynamics between demand supply and the labor market still work and are affecting inflation. But I think the macro narrative right now is actually much more than just what the Fed is saying and Powell's comments, even though, of course, this has been dominating the headlines. You know, it's been, at least according to some people, the key catalyst for risk asset performance. I actually don't think that's quite right. I actually think that what we're seeing in Europe and China actually matter a great deal um, and probably are having the bigger impact on sentiment. So, for example, we actually did get some good news. Uh, you know, we heard that the natural gas stores are actually filling up faster than planned over in Europe. And you're seeing that Germany's economy minister is actually saying that there should be around 85% by early September. And, you know, Germany has a higher threshold. They're targeting 95%. But if you look at the EU, it's actually closer to 80% right now. And that is actually the minimum that the region needs to get through the winter. So pretty good news. The only problem is that if Russia halts gas flows and Gazprom right now is saying that they're going to stop gas flows through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline for three days of maintenance, uh, you know, prices are still very high right now, even though they've come down to around 270 euros per kilowatt hour. The region is still very vulnerable to recession risks, and it could still have a full-blown energy crisis as winter comes. The last thing is China. And the real estate problems seem to be deepening. It seems like we're getting to a flashpoint, particularly with the economy still trapped by zero COVID policy. So right now, people seem like they're not going to actually repay their mortgages, or at least they're considering not repaying their mortgages, because developers don't have the funds to complete the projects they promised. Um, meanwhile, you're looking at these asset management companies, and they're in deep trouble right now. The government is actually considering restructuring the real estate sector, and maybe they might have to take over some of these firms which puts a lot more pressure on the fiscal side. And you're seeing that the M2 money supply has actually been rising very sharply. We've also seen that, 
You know, we've got a drought in six of the country's provinces. Consumer demand is actually a very, a very, very low point. Uh, it seems like it, it's very going to be very unlikely for them to deliver on the five and a half percent year-on-year GDP growth uh, that they had previously planned. So overall, it just seems that the global macroeconomic environment is just very likely to put a ceiling on investor sentiment. And I really think that's at the heart of the sell-off we're seeing right now, particularly after the levels were very overextended to the top side. And we're actually getting ahead of September seasonality. Uh, that effect tends to actually put a lot of pressure on both stocks as well as crypto. Uh, you know, next month, we actually have seen that for the month of September, uh, Bitcoin has actually weakened around 9% over the course of the last five years. If you look at just stocks, the S&P 500 has actually weakened around 0.6% over the last 20 years. So, you know, it's going to be a tough time to actually see a lot of these assets actually strengthen. I think this could be probably causing a lot of the consternation among uh, investors rather than just solely focusing on the Fed, kind of the way uh, a lot of these headlines have been doing. That's it for me. Thanks, David. So, with September being historically a bad month, with a China real estate crisis, a potential energy crisis, and rates continuing to go up, is there anything to be bullish about? See, this is where elements like the merge kind of come in, and George just kind of mentioned the headline earlier about potential risks there, but I think that this is the one part of the calculation that is very kind of hard to factor in because we don't know how potential inflows our potential positive sentiment on that side could actually drive the market. Um, and frankly, it doesn't necessarily have to be just isolated to ETH. Uh, in fact, like there could be a support that drives a lot of the crypto market, but it's unclear at this point how much of the September effect gets priced in early, allowing for some of those flows to actually be supportive for prices. I have said time and again that I think that the worst for crypto is probably observed in June when we saw a lot of those liquidations. So they kind of removed some of that excess risk already. Uh, but that doesn't mean that outperformance from a perspective uh, against TradFi means that these assets are necessarily going to do well, that we're going to see a positive return over the course of September. Got it. Thanks, David. I'm going to go and read something happy after this call to try and cheer myself up. Um, Greg, what, what have you got for us? Something a little more bullish, please. I'll do my best, Ben. Um, so yeah, volumes have continued to surprise me with uh, healthy amounts trading during these late summer weeks. Now, as uh, George and David just took us through, the market has quite a bit to focus on uh, between the upcoming merge and trying to make sense of the macro environment. So I think the level of volume uh, that we're seeing makes sense. Now, while they're healthy overall, uh, what we see on the next slide is that they're very concentrated in Ethereum and Bitcoin. Yeah, so this is as concentrated as I've seen it in quite some time. Um, again, I've talked about it before. I think I'd really like to see uh, this chart fan out a little more. Um, and that I would take as a very healthy sign uh, overall for the market. Um, now, if you've been following Ethereum price action like we have, you've probably been scratching your head a bit. It's been an incredibly volatile asset of late. It traded off its June lows um, all the way up to about 2000 before giving back about 25% of that. Um, I think that just exemplifies how difficult it can be to trade events in crypto. Uh, now, if we go to the next slide, we'll take a look at consumer buy ratios. The nice thing here, and this is, could be that positive point you were looking for, Ben, 
is we're starting to see retail come back and allocate to their favorite tokens. Retail typically skews to the buy side, uh, but for a few months, um, we've seen these figures much closer to 50, which indicated very balanced flows. We're now starting to see these numbers tick back up into 60, 70, uh, indicating support is coming back from the retail investor. Now on the CES desk, our flows have been more balanced than that. Longer term investors continue to position for the merge and add to their favorite altcoins. Uh, they're doing this very passively. No one's in any rush to uh, deploy funds. Now the more macro focused trend following traders have cut risk significantly over the past few weeks. And in my view are unlikely to come back um, until these medium term trends turn up again. Uh, and with that, back to you, Ben. Thanks, Greg. Uh, a slightly more bullish tone, uh, so appreciate that. Um, and that is a wrap for today, everybody. Appreciate your time and good luck out there. Take care. So that's the end of this week's programming. To learn more, follow us on Twitter at Coinbase Insta and check out our research and insights hub for all the latest research from the team. Both links can be found in the podcast description. See you next week.